You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this episode of Aspie's Bigger Picture series, Anastasia Capetis speaks to Dr Fiona Hill, Senior Fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings and former Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council. They discuss the state of US democracy, rising authoritarianism, US-Russia relations, and the current Russia-Ukraine situation. Dr. Hill recently published the book, There Is Nothing For You Here, and this conversation covers some of the themes of her book. A very warm welcome to you, Professor Fiona Hill. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. We're going to talk today about one of the themes in your most recent book, first of all, the state of US democracy and something not unrelated, Russia's current ambitions in Ukraine, the kind of will they or won't they invade moment that we're finding ourselves in this week now that US talks have ended pretty inconclusively. But first of all, we might talk about the current state of US democracy and where that might be going over the next 12 months, two years, um, towards the midterms and the, and the next presidential elections. So from your time as Russia lead on the ASC in the Trump years to your very public and courageous moment of congressional testimony, Trump's corrupt practices vis-a-vis Ukraine, to your current position back at Brookings a year into Biden's first term, are you more or less hopeful about the US's political trajectory? Well, at this particular moment, I'm actually more pessimistic than I was a year plus ago. And in part, that's because a year out from what all of the world saw in terms of this insurrection, the mob storming the US Capitol building on January 6th of 2021, trying to thwart the constitutional process of certifying the electoral college votes and formally transferring executive power from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, we've seen actually many more negative trends than you know one might have thought that one would after a, such a shock to the system. I mean, I'm, I'm sure from the perspective of Australia, it was just astounding to see these scenes coming out of the United States. I mean, yes, you know, we've seen plenty of protests and upheaval in the United States before, but storming the US Capitol building, that just seemed unfathomable. And, you know, there have been many unfathomable things in the sense that, you know, the reason for that storming by the mob that was, you know, revved up by former President Trump's rally is that they believed that that election had been stolen. And more than a year on, millions of Americans still believe, and maybe even more might believe, that the 2020 election was stolen by the Democratic Party and that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. And you actually see members of Congress who in the period of January 6, where this is Republican members of Congress, not just Democratic members of Congress, repudiating you know, the, the actions of the mob, pushing back on what President Trump was saying about the election being stolen from him, recognizing that Joe Biden was the actual legitimately elected president, and you know, again, calling out for you know, stepping back from this brink of violence, actually now going in the opposite direction, saying nothing happened on January 6th. There was no violence. I mean, this is an Orwellian moment, you know, kind of uh, doublespeak and you know, doublethink, you know, kind of challenging people's memories of the time, rewriting history, basically refusing to actually say that Joe Biden is the democratically elected legitimate president, you know, for example, and encouraging, you know, what we've all now come to term as the big lie that Trump won the election. And, you know, in many respects, 
many of the people who have been perpetrating this lie about 2020 are now poised to basically become the dominant force in the elections with the 2022 midterms. There's an expectation on every front that the Democratic Party is going to lose the midterms because Joe Biden has not been able to push through his own basically legislative agenda with bills to address some of the socioeconomic grievances that people have, a voting rights bill, you know, kind of bills to try to address some of the sippage in democratic practices that we've seen because there's disunity in his own party. And particularly in the Senate, two members of the Democratic Party, two senators tend to vote with the Republicans and have just voted to vote down the Voting Rights Act that the Biden administration was trying to push through. So it's all looking fairly grim. You also see that on much more local levels, you have candidates that are endorsed by President Trump and who give voice to the, the big lie and other conspiracy theories, running for what might you know be a bit of a head scratching role in school boards, but these are extraordinarily influential and in kind of you know overseeing and kind of influencing some of the things that are taught in schools and obviously become quite political entities and can be used as a platform and a springboard for other jobs in politics or you know more influence in local politics, and also running for the positions of state secretaries and the officials that oversee the counting of elections. So not just who can get out to vote and people worrying about that that was in the voting bill, but who counts the votes and what happens to them once they're counted. That was really what was all happening in January 6. And we're now seeing the removal of many of the non-partisan or even partisan in the sense of Republican secretary generals who opposed what President Trump was trying to do to steal the election for himself in 2020. So you're seeing kind of uh, the erosion of many of the checks and balances in the system. There's concerns about the Supreme Court and as whether some of the judges that were appointed in the Trump era are playing partisan politics, you know, rather than being impartial as, as one would expect. And so there's a lot of concern in the United States now, and this is a concern that I share, that the checks and balances that prevented Trump from essentially staying in power and infecting a self-coup in January of 2021 have now been eroded. So in terms of a strategy for the Democrats, if Republicans have captured institutions in this particular way, what are the options here? Is it just a matter of outvoting or are there other types of strategies that Democrats can use, given that they can't pass key elements of their agenda, as you said? Well, I think it's not just Democrats. I mean, I'm not a Democrat. So I'm non-partisan, unaffiliated voter. And, mm. you know, people like me who are out there. And I think, you know, what this has to be is a sort of a mobilisation of everyone, not just on a partisan basis, in protection of democracy. Mm -hmm. So getting that message out to people that this is very complicated and being very clear about it. I think we have a communication problem. We certainly also need to, you know, talk to members of the Republican Party who are still within Congress, who are being pushed into all kinds of loyalty tests by President Trump. He's not ideologically a Republican. He's not a conservative in the political sense. He is an opportunist who has actually hijacked the Republican Party. And people might think that's absurd from the system in Australia, which like the UK and other kind of Western countries has a very different, quite disciplined party system. And, you know, your prime minister is the person who is elected by the party, is the party leader. You don't just kind of come from absolutely nowhere and become prime minister. But that's kind of what happens in the United States. You can have someone like Trump have nothing to do with the Republican Party for, you know, a long period of time, not have any previous experience in government or in party politics, and sort of vault in with lots of money and charisma and a campaign and, you know, pretty much take it over. And now what he's trying to do is literally take over the rest of the Republican Party, having got the votes that make him sort of the party leader, though 
obviously there's a struggle with the established party leadership in Congress and the Senate, but he's trying to make the party in his own image with people who are loyal to him and try to do that on a national level as well, out to the states and support of governors and people in other you know, local elections. And really, that's what needs to be countered calling out what is happening here, that this is an individual who's trying to usurp the kind of authority of parties, short-circuit representational democracy, and in effect hijack the country for their own personal private gain and in the interest of their own power and influence. Trump isn't even trying to you know, hide the fact that that's what he's doing. He's very blatant about it and open about it. And I think there is an effort that needs to be generated to get people to speak up. I'm trying to speak up and speak out. And a lot of other people are too, but we really have to get some momentum behind that. It's a really perilous moment. And I do think also other countries, our allies and friends like Australia and many others should speak out and express their concerns to people. Uh, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you as we go down our conversation, which is, you know, how should allies handle the prospect of a return to power of a party in the US that has seemed to abandon the notion of a, a liberal plural democracy? This has been very difficult for allies over the last five or six years, a, a test of the convention of nonpartisanship in allied relations, challenges to our sense of democratic balance, that there are two legitimate political parties in a democracy and that those parties actually support the political system in which they operate. So next time around, you know, if there is a next time around, how should allies react? You should say it like it is. I mean, in fact, that was a great script. You should pass it around. That's exactly what you should say. I mean, you know, is the United States going to become the leader of a liberal democracy? Are we going to compete with, you know, Vladimir Putin in Russia or Viktor Orban in Hungary or Bolsonaro in Brazil? I mean, is that where we're going? I mean, is that really what people want to see the United States do? I think that has to be challenged. And when members of parliament from Australia are visiting their counterparts, they should speak up and say that. I mean, Australia, you have the advantage of being, you know, literally on the other side of the world. You're known for your fierce independence and, you know, your own viewpoints and for blunt speaking and have at it. I would I would basically, honestly, hope that you would consider doing that, you know, not just you personally, but others to speak out. I think the United States does have to be held to account and held on notice in that context, because the whole of, you know, the global dynamic and you know trajectory could shift as a result of the United States stepping away from both domestically upholding democracy and you know principles and values but also ceasing to defend them abroad and we saw that under Trump others were trying to be defenders of democracy and democratic values and principles of freedom and assembly and the speech etc around the world but you know Trump was not doing that personally and, you know, the rot starts at the top, as, you know, people would say. And I think the United States needs to be called out for that. I mean, the United States has called out plenty of other countries in the past. Indeed. And of course, look, you know, the situation is well advanced in the US, but it's not alone. There are other liberal democracies as well where the seeds of authoritarianism seem to be invigorated. What are some of the keys to understanding, you know, this current historical moment where liberal democracies find themselves in a strange position where authoritarianism it threatens from within. Why are we? Why? Why are we here? I think it's because of the fast pace of change, and you know we're seeing that on every front. People talk about the three C's that are really challenging everything. That's the letter C: China, COVID, and climate change. And obviously, from the Australian point of view, you're experiencing all of those three a little bit too close and rather uncomfortable at the moment. 
And when you have rapid change and on many fronts, because it's not just that, of course, we have demographic change, generational change, the means of kind of work are changing, right? We have artificial intelligence. We have the future seems filled with battery-operated electric vehicles, which are you know, autonomous vehicles. People are you know, not going to be driving cars anymore. Cars are going to be driving themselves. Uh, people are working remotely. I mean, you and I are remote now. You know, it's great that we're able to speak across all these thousands of miles, but this is not the way that people thought they would be doing their work, you know, from a little box in their office at home or in their basement or in their bathroom or wherever it is that they can find a place to put their computer. And other people, you know, are not able to work like that, but, you know, their opportunity for work is shifting. And it's at that time of rapid change where people feel disoriented. Uh, there's a sense of sort of dislocation. And that, you know, you can't personally and individually see a way of affecting this, that a kind of a populist charismatic figure can emerge and say, I'm going to fix this for you. I'm going to put everything back. I'm going to make everything right. Because people are worried about losing their place and their identity and their wherewithal for, you know, providing for their families. The, you know, it's everything's changing and everything's at risk. And it's that kind of environment time and time again that we've seen populists step in and fill the vacuum because it's easy to promise something. And populists, it's a style of government. It can be on the left and on the right. You have a lot of promises, not you know deep policy prescriptions, because those are hard to affect. I mean, look at Biden. He's the antithesis of a populist in the United States. He's got all these big policy platforms and these big bills he wants to, and he just can't get them through because they're so complex. People don't understand what they are. People push back on different areas. It's so much easier to promise something and go through the performance of doing them. That's what Trump did all the time. He was always performing actions related to the various promises that he'd made, but actually not doing them. I mean, some of the things he did, I mean, he promised to pull out of various treaties and he did that. He did promise to deregulate and try to create jobs because that he did that as well. But none of those jobs had permanent benefits. And, you know, as soon as COVID and the pandemic came along, a lot of um, employment that had emerged in his presidency faded away. And, you know, we ended up with more kind of chaos as well. So again, this performative politics is a lot easier than actual public policy getting implemented. If Trump doesn't run for whatever reason, again, given his age and you know possible state of health, what figures around Trump are, of most, are likely to perhaps take his place? And which ones are you most concerned about who might be presidential contenders or at least be very influential in another Republican administration? I'm concerned about anybody who has bought into the big lie and has not repudiated it because that means that they're likely to do that in their own circumstances in the future. I think it's a pretty much blanket concern that anyone should have mm. and it ought to be a test, you know, about why were you lying about this? What does that mean for the future? And people say, oh, well, all politicians lie. That is one <laughs> heck of a lie. I mean, I guess one of the other things that sprung up as a change in the Trump administration was the attitude of the US to Russia in some ways. Very famously, Trump seemed to be relatively enamoured of Putin and his work in Russia. At this particular moment, in terms of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, what I'm curious about is that the attitude on, on the Republican side of the House seems to be a little bit split. You have senators like Ted Cruz, who are really looking to be much tougher on Russia, to sanction Nord Stream, for example, where Biden is still holding back on that particular way of centering Russia. Has the Republican attitude to Russia changed, do you think? Or... Is it still, in, in terms of where the party is, still very much where Tucker Carlson is, which is reliably spruiking Russia on his Fox News show, including this week? And often those comments are rerun on Russian state TV. No, I think there's a difference between the Tucker Carlson performance and you know where a lot of the Republicans are 
particularly in the Senate and Congress. Although, look, I think there's an awful lot of people in the Congress now who are in the mode of Trump, you know, those so-called MAGA congressional candidates and members, MAGA being, you know, make America great again. It's become a kind of a whole thing in itself. And that they're also sort of playing with this kind of idea of Russia and Putin for their own purposes and espousing all the kinds of tenets of a liberal, illiberal democracy and kind of going out there and trying to push back all the other policy. But I do think that there's still that kind of core thinking in Congress and in the Senate that there needs to be strong action taken against Russia. And look, after 2016 and the Russian intervention in US politics, was a huge backlash. I mean, there was a lot of anger on the Republican side not just on the democratic side. But as you, you know, pointed out, Trump had something of a personal obsession with Putin. It was a bromance. You know, he um, admired the way that Putin strutted the stage and ran the country. He wanted to be like that too. You know, have people fear and respect him as well as love him. I think Putin wants the fear and respect more than anything else, but Trump wanted everyone to be nice well. to him and to love him and stuff as well. But he wanted to have basically no checks and balances in the system and to be able to do what he wanted to do and run the country like his own business and be fabulously rich, strong and powerful. That was what was going on. And I don't think that was universally shared by members of Congress and Senate, certainly not the ones I spoke to anyway. Um, so again, turning now very much to Russia and its generation of this crisis situation on the Ukraine border, how would you rate the Biden administration's handling of the Ukraine crisis thus far? Look, I think they're doing you know the best that they can under the circumstances. This is very tricky. I don't want anyone to think that there's some easy solution that everyone's missing here. Because what we've got here is a unitary actor in the form of Putin and the people around him, they're all unified in their views, who have all the advantages of having no checks and balances. And, you know, they can act in a time and a method of their choosing and they've ranged out a number of options themselves. It may not be in as easy as they seem to be projecting. I mean, maybe they don't actually think that, but they're projecting this idea that it would be very easy to invade Ukraine take Kiev, topple Zelensky and, you know, kind of move on from there, for example. It may not be what they're planning on doing, but the thing is they're keeping us all guessing. And the problem for us is that we are not a unified actor. Biden doesn't even have unity in his own parties, we've seen from his efforts to push through his domestic political agenda. We have to act with our allies. And, you know, Ukraine is not ours to give away. And Biden has to worry about the midterms, the 2024 election, the press, you know, pushback from everybody imaginable, complaints from the allies. And, you know, we have an awful lot of disadvantages. It really does look like Putin's got all the cards and is in the driving seat here. So given all of that, the Biden administration is trying to find its way around, thinking through diplomacy, trying to test the proposition, trying to figure out what the Russians want. Putin said he wants the moon, the stars, the world, the universe, the sun, you know, you name it. We need to find a flaw to that. Is there some minimum that we can talk to them about? We should have been talking to the Russians about many of these issues without it being at the expense of them blowing up Ukraine in some fashion. But we weren't moving at their pace. Partly that's also a structural problem. We change over all the time. Putin's been Putin. <laughs> He's been where he has for 21 years, right? 22. Five different presidents, I think, have come and gone. I haven't kind of done the math there. But basically people come and go. He stays and he stews and gets frustrated about the lack of progress on the issues that he wants to resolve. So he's decided to kind of just blow the place up and get kind of full attention and see if people are going to deal with it now. It's kind of basically his fuse has kind of lit and he's gone off kind of thing. And it's just the problem is we just don't know exactly what it is. But he said so many things that he wants. It's now people are having a hard time cutting through to is there a core 
And maybe there isn't anymore. Maybe he's just moved on and said, well, now I want this and now I want that as he's staying at. And that puts Biden and everyone else in an impossible situation. The only way we cut through this is when our allies, you know, including Australia and everyone else are on this as well, because this is a challenge to everyone. This isn't just about European security. I mean, you live in a neighbourhood, admittedly quite far from some of your immediate neighbours, but certainly where other countries have been flexing their muscles. And that's not a comfortable prospect, thinking that, you know, if Russia gets away with something here, you know, something again, because they've already annexed Crimea and Satwa and Donbass, what's everybody else going to do in the, the broader neighbourhood? Do other countries think, yeah, fine to do that. If I'm big enough, I can do what I so, want. So, again, following up on that point about disunity in terms of you know actual actions that can be exploited by Russia, much has been made of divisions in the EU in recent days in particular. Some commentators hoped with a new administration in Germany that would be more yeah. tough on, on Russia, but that seems to not have emerged, or at least the Germans are still getting their position together. Macron has floated a Russia-EU security pact, which the Russians rebuffed, um, saying that they'd rather deal with the US or not at all. And for some other commentators and also European politicians have recently kind of claimed, well, one of Russia's most successful power plays over the last 20 years has been elite infiltration of political elites and economic elites in the EU and the UK. Do you agree with that? Oh, I do, yeah. I mean, I, I do agree that they've infiltrated. I mean, you had problems in Australia, self and scandals over China and Chinese influence and it's very much the case that, you know, you have former cabinet members in you know, the UK, prominent officials, including a chancellor of Germany, you know, working for either Russian oligarchs or major Russian companies. You know, the Russians have been able to put money around all over the place and investments and use it as leverage. And I think we've really weakened our position that way. I mean, I'm not opposed at all about engagement with Russia, trying to find a way forward, you know, finding a different way of creating a non-confrontational relationship. But by allowing Russia to exploit our own corruption, that's not going to be the way to do that. I mean, we have to basically live up to our own principles and values and not be bought off. And then we can change the trajectory and the calculus of the relationship. I mean, it's only, it has to be a relationship based on principle and on our own resilience and strength. And we need to know what we want, too. It's not just we want to avail ourselves of billions of dollars of Russian money, you know, and kind of swan around on, you know, a Russian oligarch's yacht, for example. You know, I think we should be any <laughs> bit higher here. Yeah, I mean, you spoke just before about Russia holding a lot of cards. And of course, one of those cards is Russia is now is riding very high on oil and gas prices. These are contributing to politically damaging inflation in Western economies. But I just wanted to ask you, what does the future hold for Russia beyond this current crisis over the next decade when uh, Russia will go through two very tricky transitions? One is the transition of power from Putin to an unknown person. And, of course, the global energy transition, which will affect Russia's bottom line quite dramatically. Well, I think that that's the great question and you've framed it perfectly. Putin's the wild card in the system. He doesn't want to actually say who he's thinking of as a successor because then he becomes a lame duck. There's all the speculation all the time about is there something wrong with him? You know, what about health? He'll be 70 next birthday this year. What does that mean? You know, 70 in you know, some settings isn't old at all, but in a Russian setting, that used to be kind of like the actuary tables, kind of insurance premiums would go up after that point. Life expectancy, you know, he's been well cared for, he seems pretty fit. It probably could go on. But look, I mean, people get sick and we don't know, right? And so that lack of certainty and structure around basically the succession makes Russia look like an unstable monarchy. And in the past, 
during the czars, kind of a the czar would die without clear air or an heir who was a teenager or something, just like kings and queens in England and everything, and the whole place would be thrown into turmoil. So there's a lot of risk there. And the system in the Soviet period worked. There was a succession order. There isn't really in Russia, there, there is a technical succession to the prime minister or the speaker, you know, parliament type thing that we have in other settings. But then another person would have to be found and it could become nasty and messy. And it isn't kind of a given that your successor look at just what happened in Kazakhstan, that things are going to go smoothly. Where you had Nazarbayev, the president of Kazakhstan, handing off to his former foreign minister and uh, someone who had been very close to him. President now Takayev, and then troubles break out, and Russia has to kind of come in and help them sort it out. So that's a bit of a cautionary tale there, too. But the energy aspect of this is pretty serious. And I think that's another reason for why Russia's trying to act now, because right now Russia dominates certainly German energy sector and, you know, another part of Eastern Europe. Russia has a lot of leverage right now. Oil and gas prices are high because of shortages in production or shortages in storage for various countries, the ups and downs of the whole economy, thanks to COVID and the pandemic and people not making plans because we just never knew what was going to be happening. All of the messaging coming out of Glasgow, the climate change summit that we just had, you know, suggests a world that is really going to have to move in the direction of diversification, you know, move away from hydrocarbons. I mean, Australia, you know, kind of grappling with that as well. And that doesn't look like a world where Russia is going to dominate. Russia isn't renowned right now, could be, you know, for its green technologies or its alternative fuels. I mean, apart from we don't want them burning more pulp and paper. (laughs) That just adds to the problems because they have, you know, huge forest stands, for example. They look like they're going to have, you know, some major problems with climate change, the melting of the permafrost, the emissions of methane, you know, from they've had huge forest fires, just like you've had in Australia. There's a lot of problems there. And so, you know, if you're Putin and you're kind of thinking along to the future, it doesn't look quite so rosy. So it's more of an issue about how do you strike now while you can, in terms of getting across while you still have that leverage in oil and gas sector to get the kind of some of the things you might want in the larger geopolitical realm. Because as you're saying, in the next 10 years plus, it doesn't look you know, quite so much like you're in the driving seat on energy issues and you're going to be scrambling around trying to figure out you know, where you move yourself. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there, but I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your on-the-ground experience and insight into the future of both American democracy and that of the Putin regime. Oh, well, thank you so much, Anastasia. Thank you so much for having me. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.